I think that chapter 3 is best understood if we are fully up to speed with what happens in chapters 1 and 2. So I, I, I'm not going to spend an hour and a half on 1 and 2, but we're going to at least review it and bring you uh, up to speed. So turn to Habakkuk, and we'll start actually in chapter 1. <clears throat> the book of Habakkuk, as we've mentioned, Luke mentioned it, I mentioned it the first week, is unique in that uh, Habakkuk doesn't go to the people and say, thus saith the Lord, but rather it is a record of his conversation with God and then a prayer. Uh, Habakkuk offers a complaint to God. He's unhappy with how God is handling certain things. God answers, a surprising answer. Habakkuk comes back and says, okay, I get that, but I have a second complaint now. He offers that complaint. Habak uh, God responds to that one. And, and then finally, what we'll look at ultimately today, chapter 3, Habakkuk says, okay, I'm good with that. I don't like it, but I'm good with that because you're God and you know best. And then he prays this magnificent prayer in chapter 3 uh, that recalls uh, not only God's salvation history, but his creation history as well. It kind of plays out at, on two levels. And at the end, he says, I'm going to submit everything to you. Uh, in you, I find my strength. That is ultimately where we're headed. But let, let me show you how we got there. Uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, we see Habakkuk's first complaint to God and God's surprising initial response to that first complaint. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or, or, or cry to you, violence. I see all of this violence and wickedness and you will not save. Literally, you'll not deliver us from this wickedness. And the point we made in the first week was we have these questions for God too. We look around and we say, what is up with you, God? We see this stuff. Don't you see it? Where are you? Why don't you show up? Why don't you help? Why don't you be God in our minds? So we ask these same questions and he goes on. He says, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? It seems as though, God, you're indifferent to all of this bad stuff that's happening. Why do I see this but you don't? There's destruction and violence before me. Strife and contention arise. And so, as a result, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. So those who seek justice and are being oppressed uh, and rightfully want this to be made right, they're not getting uh, any satisfaction whatsoever. Uh, for the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. If justice goes, does go forward, it goes forth in a corrupt and perverted way. That's his first complaint. He says this about his own people, Habakkuk, the Jews. And he says this in the year 608, just before uh, the Babylonians are going to come in in 605 and destroy uh, Judah and Jerusalem. Well, God gives Habakkuk a little preview to that. He says, listen, I know what's going on, and here's my answer. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. He says, this is going to blow your mind. But then he tells him. He says, you're not going to believe it, but here you go. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So God is saying, I'm raising them up to be my instrument of judgment against the wickedness of my own people and of your people. That's right. I'm raising up somebody worse than you guys to be my instrument of judgment. And Habakkuk listens to this, and, and he responds with some measure of confidence, but then moves into a second complaint. If you look at verse 12 of chapter 1, it's interesting. God finishes speaking, his first response, and Habakkuk responds by saying this in verse 12. 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. That's an expression of confidence in what God is going to do, even though it's kind of weird. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. But then, after he gives this uh, expression of confidence in God, he then says, but I have a second complaint. I am now confused about what's going on. You're going to use a a people group that's worse than we are. Yes, we're wicked. There's sin around us. But those Babylonians, they're worse than we are. And, And as Luke so aptly pointed out last week, what he's saying is Habakkuk is just like everybody else. He's a religious person. Religious people like to compare themselves to other people. And because we can always find somebody who's worse than we are, we can compare ourselves to somebody that's worse than us and feel good about ourselves and then say, God, why are you using them and not me? Why are they being blessed and not me? Why are you using them to judge me when I'm better than they are? That's what religious people do. But people who know God recognize that what we need to do is we need to look at him who is holy and perfect, realize how far short we really do fall, and then recognize our need for Jesus as our Savior. That that's the only thing that can make us right and holy is to appropriate Jesus' salvation, his work on the cross and, and, and his resurrection into our lives. That's the point. So Habakkuk at this point is still a religious person in this dialogue. And so God answers him and he, and, and he, says, he says, listen, I, I'm going to take care of this. But Habakkuk is really confused about this, just like you and I would be. But it's interesting because Habakkuk ends his second complaint once again with a statement of confidence. He bookends this complaint of confusion with confident statements about God. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Okay, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. In other words, he says, listen, I'm confused, I don't like this, but I have enough confidence in God, he has a wonderful history in creation and salvation and redemption already, that I will wait for him to answer, no, longer, no matter how long that answer takes. And so, and so God uh, reveals to him what the answer is gonna be. He says here in, in chapter two, verse two, he says, and the Lord answered me, God says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. In other words, this, this dialogue is not supposed to be kept secret. It is supposed to be for everyone to know about and everyone to hear. Verse 3, for the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end and will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So this is God saying, listen, Habakkuk. I'm glad that you have enough confidence to be patient because you are going to need your patience. This is going to take a long time. I am eventually going to judge the Babylonians for what they do to you, even though I use them as as an instrument of judgment against you. I will eventually judge them, but it's going to be 70 years in the coming. The Babylonians uh, besieged Jerusalem and carried back the, the Jews to Babylon 700 miles to the east in the year 605. Where they were in exile, God preserved a remnant for 70 years, a small remnant of Jews. And then in 539 BC, the Medo-Persian Empire came in and took over from Babylon as the superpower of the world, thus liberating the Jews. But it took 70 years. So God is saying, it's going to take some time. You're going to need that patience. And then verse 4, which is the focus verse of this entire book. Everything points back to this verse. God says in verse 4, Behold, his soul, meaning 
the nation of Babylon and its, its leader, King Nebuchadnezzar, his soul is puffed up and not upright within him. In other words, they are filled with pride and God doesn't like pride. He likes humility. But then he contrasts that with the next line, which is the most important line. But the righteous, Habakkuk, shall live by faith, his faith. The righteous are going to live by faith. In other words, you're going to need faith. You're going to need patience. You're going to need endurance. You're going to need perseverance to be able to go through this. The righteous shall live by his faith. And then God goes on in the rest of chapter 2 to let Habakkuk know, I do have the Babylonians all figured out. Don't worry. It's not like their, their deeds have gone unnoticed. I know they are wicked. I know they worship idols. I know they pray on the weak. I know that they are unjust. I know that they are sick with pride and they will be judged. It's as if God is saying to them uh, what Paul says to us 700 years later in his letter to the book, uh, in his letter uh, to the church at Galatians, in the book of Galatians. When, when, when he says to us in chapter 6, verse 1, do not deceive yourself. God is not mocked. And what does that mean that God will not be mocked? It means that if you rebel against God, if you tell God that you don't like his teaching, his ways, his son, if you're going to do it your own way, if you're, going to, if you're going to trust yourself for your own salvation, if you're going to walk away from God, that is mocking God. That is making fun of God. And Paul is saying, don't deceive yourself. God will not accept being mocked. And then he says, you reap what you sow. What you sow will eventually come back to you. It may not be right away, but eventually God will set all accounts correct. You reap what you sow. And so he's telling Habakkuk, don't worry, the Babylonians will eventually reap what they have sown. And then there is this, this woe to him refrain that Luke talked about last week. Five times uh, God says, in chapter 2, he says, woe to him. And he's talking about the Babylonians. He's saying, woe to him who take what, what isn't theirs. Woe to him who spill the blood of innocence in order for them to profit. Woe to him who do all of these wicked things. Five times he says that. Woe to him, woe to him, woe to him. And it reminds me of Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is standing with the religious professionals right very close to the time that he's going to be crucified. And he knows he's going to be crucified by these guys. He's standing with them, and he starts saying to those religious professionals woe to you woe to you woe to you woe to you and we have to realize that first of all those religious professionals were offended that Jesus this prophet from nowhere who who probably had no formal training like they had he was from a town Nazareth which they would say it's like he's from Gila Bend for crying out loud nothing good can come how is this guy working out He's saying, woe to us. Well, not only that, but they're also hearing in, in, in Jesus saying that, they're also hearing, you're no better than the Babylonians. So it was this sort of double put you in your place. You're just like the Babylonians. You're wicked. You're religious, but you're wicked, just like the Babylonians. And then God ends chapter 2 with sarcasm. A lot of people don't realize that God has a wonderful sense of humor and his favorite way to express that is usually through sarcasm, irony, or satire. And the last three verses of his second response to Habakkuk in chapter 2 are filled with sarcasm. Uh, listen to what he says here. He's still talking about Babylon. He says, What prophet is an idol or a false god when its maker has shaped it? 
A metal image, a teacher of lies. What profit is that? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, or to a silent stone, arise. That's, that's, that's humor. That's sarca- God is being sarcastic. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. In other words, you make it look real pretty like it might be important, but there's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. You see the ironic wordplay there. He's saying that you and I, by the way, we're, we're just like the Babylonians. We do the same thing. You and I make our idols and false gods today. We create them. We have idols and false gods of comfort and convenience, of our careers, our, our jobs, of some of our relationships. We make idols out of our kids. We make idols out of our parents. We, we make idols out of wealth and money. We make idols out of all of these things, and, and we worship them, and we, we hold them up, and we, we think they're special, but they're silent. They can't speak. They cannot speak to us. And God says, I'm the one that you're supposed to be silent in front of. I'm the one that you're to be silent in front of. It's very interesting because uh, another Babylonian era prophet named Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, right towards the end of the Babylonian reign, in in fact, uh, uh, Daniel chapter 5 is the night that the Babylonian empire fell to the Medo-Persian empire. Belshazzar, the king, was having this huge party. Do you remember this story? And, and this big, in the midst of this big party, a hand appears, just a hand, and it writes something on the wall. Have you ever been to a party where something like that happened? Yeah, okay. College frat houses, I'm telling you, man. So something, and so Belshazzar's going, I got to know what this writing is. I don't understand what this writing is. And he brings in all these people, and nobody can figure it out. And finally they go, what about that guy Daniel that your grandfather knew and thought was really special? Maybe he can help. And so they bring Daniel in, and Daniel's going to interpret the writing on the wall. But it's funny because Daniel says, I'm going to do that, but first I'm going to give you a little history lesson, and then I'm going to let you know what your problem is. And at one point, Daniel says this in chapter 5, And you, Belshazzar, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, the god of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. These gods are dead. They don't see anything. They don't know anything. They don't hear anything. They do not say anything. They are speechless idols. But the God in whose hand is your breath, you have not honored. In other words, the living God. The God who speaks to us through His Scripture. The God who speaks to us through prayer. The God who speaks to us through our community. Other believers. He is alive and he is well. Jesus Christ is raised. He is resurrected to new life. He is alive and he speaks to us. He is the living God. The Alpha and the Omega from here to eternity. He is alive. And so we recognize that this is a theme with God and the Babylonians. The Babylonians have this problem with idols, with silent idols. And God keeps pointing it out and pointing it out. He even points it out in in the prophet of Ezekiel as well. And, And you think about these these idols, looking a little bit deeper into these idols and false gods that we create for ourselves. I, I want you to understand, when we make these things, and, and, and they are silent, we like them to be silent. We want them to be silent. We really don't want these idols and these false gods that we supposedly worship to speak to us. Nobody wants their idols or false gods to speak to us, and the reason is because we really think we're God. We may not say it out loud, 
But practically, that's the way we behave. And so if we're God, these idols and false gods that we have created, what they're supposed to do is just shut up and do their job. They're supposed to provide us with comfort and pleasure, and they're supposed to affirm us. They are supposed to do the job that we have created them to do. Give us a sense of security, even though it's false, a false sense of security. In other words, our idols are supposed to treat us like we are God. But then when we realize, finally, and at some point all of us will realize this, that our power, our prowess, and our sovereignty cannot match the one who created the universe, who liberated his people from Egypt in the Exodus, and who raised Jesus from the dead, when we realize that, then we are rightfully silent before him. That's when the world is turned right side up. And we are silent before the one true God. It's just like Luke said last week. God is saying, I'm God, trust me, I've got this. Be quiet, be quiet before me. And now we get to Habakkuk's resolution in chapter three. And it's very interesting. Go, go, go to the end of chapter three and look at verse 19. That last line that Alessi read, to the choir master with stringed instruments. In other words, this prayer was not supposed to be silent or private or secret. And then go back to verse one and look at the very first line of verse one. Again, you have this sort of bookending going on in what Habakkuk is doing. He starts chapter three by saying, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shagayanoth. Well, what's a Shagai? How many of you know what a Shagayanoth is? I had to look it up. Here's what it is. It's a lyrical poem of emotion when one is resigned to reality, written to be accompanied by music. So the point I'm trying to get at here, I want to say it again. This is not a secret. This is a message for all of the people. The people are going to reject this message, but nevertheless, they did hear the message. And what follows this uh, idea of the Shagayanoth, what follows now is Habakkuk's prayer. And, and many people say that this is the greatest prayer we can find in the Old Testament, which is saying a lot because there's a lot of prayers in the Old Testament. We, have, we even have a book of 150 of them called the Psalms. Many people say this is better than even those prayers you'll find in the psalm. So let's start to unpack it a little bit. And we're going to be a little bit heavy on verse 2 and then kind of fly through a lot of the rest of it and then we'll be heavy on the ending verses as well. So verse 2, Habakkuk starts by saying, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk is looking back on the history of God, much of it contained in the Old Testament writings that we have, and here's what's happening. He's coming to grips with reality. He's beginning to recognize there's nothing he can do, this is gonna happen, and he's coming to grips with that reality. When you and I suddenly realize that because of our unrepentant sin in our life, that there's going to be consequences, there's going to be judgment for that. You know, something, something like, oh no, I'm gonna lose my job, or, or I'm going to lose a key relationship or my reputation is going to be obliterated and my family and my, my friends and my coworkers they're no longer going to trust me and, and I'm going to suffer emotional bankruptcy. Whatever it is, when we, that moment you suddenly feel that, it's the weight of reality sinking into us. I tend to sweat a lot when that happens to me. I just break out in a, in a very bad sweat. And these things that I just brought up, they're, they're unpleasant because these are the very items that remind me of a time when I was sitting with a very good friend 
who was just, it was just when he was coming to grips with the reality that his unrepentant sin was leading to these very things in his life. He was losing his job, his family was getting ready to leave him, and they did leave him. He had lost his ability to find a job in, in his industry, so his economic viability had been destroyed, and he had lost trust with everyone. And let me tell you something, that clarifies reality like few things can. And he was also sweating as well. That's the reaction we have. This is Habakkuk saying, okay, the party's over. Reality is setting in. Get ready for the storm. And he's saying, oh, and by the way, it's the storm that we caused. You can't blame anybody else for this storm. We caused this storm. And that can be frightening. It can be scary. We need to just admit that. We need to realize the reality of that. You know, the church for decades has been, has been doing this thing where they want to soften the idea of the fear of God. For years, the church has been teaching, oh, every time you come across that little, that little phrase, the fear of God, the fear of God, we want to soften it. We want to talk about how it's, oh, it, what, no, no, no. It means awe and reverence and, and, and wonder and majesty and, and mystery. And all of those things are good. I'm not bagging on those things. Those are all good because that's all a part of the fear of God. But if it's just that, it's incomplete. It's an incomplete picture. It's not bad that we are also afraid. Literally afraid. Because God is powerful. God is sovereign. God is holy. God is absolute. And when we stand metaphorically right next to him, that should scare us a little bit. He can do whatever he wants. And that should instill in us mortals a healthy kind of fear. It really should. Listen, listen, listen. I don't think it's such a bad thing when I don't sin because I'm afraid to. Is that such a bad thing? Jackie would say it's not a bad thing. It's not such a bad thing. It's kind of shades of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, you know? God is very, very good. But he's not always safe. But also, but also, Habakkuk knows that God is more than just one characteristic. This is really important. I mentioned this the first week. This is an important concept. Don't make the mistake of making God into just one of his characteristics. Your favorite characteristic. Most of the time we do this with love. And what people will do is they'll cite that verse out of 1 John. And they'll say, no, 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 God's, God is love. It says so right there in the Bible. God is love. And, and so that's all our God is. God is just love. Love, 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 love. God is love, love, God is love. Well, God is also, no, 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 God is just love, 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 oh, love. Well, that's a really bad view of who God is if he's just love because he's many other things as well. Here's the problem, though. We also have those wrath freaks out there. If you run into them, they're not like this. They're like this. God is wrath. God is angry. God is going to judge you, yes. Not going to judge me, but he's going to judge you. He's angry. He's angry at sin. And it, th- th- this is coming now. Just look at the world. It's so bad. It's coming. Oh, God is wrathful. He's full of wrath. That is just as unhealthy. 
He, he is all of these things. He's absolute and he is perfect. He's more than any one aspect. And so, Habakkuk says on the back end of verse 2, in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath. Remember mercy. And God does remember mercy. It takes him 70 years, but he does remember. It takes 70 years, but then just as, as miraculously as God judged his people, the Jews, with the might of the Babylonian army, just as miraculously, he then releases the Jews by the might and the power of the Medo-Persian Empire when they came in and took over Babylon. I'm telling you, I... I, I have suffered and will suffer, I'm sure, many unpleasant temporal consequences for my own sin. But I have also found in the midst of that, in the midst of those experiences, that God also usually shows his grace, his mercy, and his sweetness, even in the midst of those awful temporal consequences. Sometimes it's just a glimpse, just enough, just a little bit to let me know he's there. Sometimes it's a tsunami. I don't like this, and he just floods me. Sometimes I really have to go and look for his mercy, but other times it, is, it just overwhelms me and it's obvious. It's like he's saying, listen, Frank, you reap what you sow, but even in the midst of the reaping, I am right there with you. I am present with you. There is a genuine sweetness of seeing God's redemptive mercy in the midst of the consequences of our sin. Now, verses 3 through 15 are a recollection of God's saving acts and his historical work in creation. And they kind of, th this, this narrative here, it's a prayer, but it's a narrative of sorts. It plays on two levels. You look at verses 3 and 4. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there, there he veiled his power. Again, this plays out on two levels. It describes God's power in creation, but it's also a, a reference to the beginning of the Exodus story when God brought the Jews out of Egypt. And then look at verse 5. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Again, this is poetic language, so it plays out at a couple of levels. It's describing the Exodus, God freeing the Jews from Egypt, but it's also a picture of divine judgment. And it is also a picture of what life is, is like when God is not present, when he withdraws his common grace from us. You know, when bad stuff happens, many complain that God isn't doing anything. When 9-11 happened, when, when Sandy Hook happened, the, the common refrain was, where was God? Where was God? Where was God? I don't understand. Did God look away? Was God not present? Where was God? Where was God? I'd like to suggest that he's actually probably doing more than we'll ever know. I think he holds back more evil than we realize. And one of the reasons we don't realize it is we've lost the understanding of how wicked and evil sin really is. If you read some of those um, classic works from the 17th, 16th, 18th century, uh, uh, that maybe some of the Puritans wrote about sin and what sin is like, I know, reading a whole book about sin, what a downer. I understand. But it helps our perspective. Here you go. One of those titles, The Sinfulness of Sin, sounds really redundant. He's trying to make a point. It's really bad. And when we understand the nature of sin, that it's so powerful, 
And when we understand that, so when a school shooting or an economic or social injustice takes place or, a, or an act of terrorism or other acts of wickedness, my flinch, understanding what sin is, is not to think about how bad it is, but to, but to be thankful that more of this doesn't happen and wonder why more doesn't happen. I really do. I look at this stuff and go, I'm surprised that more doesn't happen. And I'm just thankful that, that there isn't more. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. More references to the Exodus. And then he says, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Those are references in verse 8 directly to the Nile, the Red Sea, and the Jordan. And the answer to all of these rhetorical questions is, of course not. But we need to understand the reality of these rhetorical questions. And this is a little bit uncomfortable. This is tough. This is Habakkuk saying, although God may use inanimate objects for his purposes, God does not execute divine justice against inanimate things. His divine judgment is for people. We just need to recognize the reality of that. But also... This is Habakkuk remembering God's salvation and justice in the past so that he can rest assured of the salvation and justice that God will execute in the future. That he's going to rescue, that he's going to rescue this remnant from Babylon. That, that he's going to save his people. You know, you and I, when, when we are frustrated and impatient and incredulous with God, which Habakkuk was at the beginning of this book, we need to remember our salvation history just like Habakkuk is remembering his. And our salvation history is the good news of Jesus Christ on the cross and resurrected from the grave. We need to remember the cross. We need to remember the resurrection. They remembered the exodus, their salvation history. We need to remember Jesus. And, and it's funny because uh, Hughes points out that the, the New Testament Greek word, euangelion, for gospel, for good news, it actually comes from a root Hebrew word that, that describes what it was like for the Jews to be released and delivered from oppression and exile and the, exod and the exodus. There is a correlation between the salvation histories of the Jews and us, between exodus and Jesus on the cross. And then verses 9 through 13, he says, you strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted up, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood in their place and the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. These verses are talking about the fact that the power and intensity of God's wrath and judgment have a singular purpose, and that is for the salvation of his people, the salvation of his anointed. Listen, the way to salvation, redemption, and life is not always filled with pleasure. It is not always a Disneyland ride of glee to get to that point. And then verses 13b through 15. He says, You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from, neck, from thigh to neck. You pierced him 
with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. What Habakkuk is saying here is that God always defeats the enemy. In Romans chapter 16, Paul says this, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan. God will defeat his enemies. And once again, this is Habakkuk remembering the Exodus story. He remembers God's past so that he has confidence about his future. And then verse 16. Verse 16 is so important. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. There is a confluence of emotions in this verse. Habakkuk is afraid for Jerusalem. He's afraid for the southern kingdom. He's afraid for Judah. He's afraid for God's people and he is afraid of, for himself. But you can see at the end of that verse, he's also resigned to patient and confident perseverance in the face of that fear. The assurance of salvation has the power to do that for us as well. Habakkuk knows that what's coming will be the most difficult thing that he has ever gone through, if he can even survive it. But the assurance that God will eventually judge the, the Babylonians and have a remnant that will eventually come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the nation gives him the confidence and the patience to face the storm. And there should be a striking parallel for us. You and I constantly face injustice and unfairness and wickedness. Things just aren't right. And it makes us mad and it makes us sad and it makes us afraid and we want something done about it will the cross and the resurrection are our guarantee that it will be made right and it will be made right at the right time again Paul in the New Testament in Romans chapter 5 says this for while we were still weak at the right time God Christ died for the ungodly at the right time God came to save sinners like you and me through the death of his son Martin Luther King had a marvelous way during his lifetime of being able to put things, to articulate things in language that everybody could understand, but that was rooted in biblical theology. And if you read King's own essays, you recognize that, that if your understanding of King isn't what his understanding of King, and it might not be, you need to hear this. You read his own essays. He used to write all the time, I am a pastor first. I am a biblical theologian first and a civil rights leader second. And all of my civil rights leading and, and worldview comes from a biblical understanding of life. And so he had this wonderful way of, of taking biblical truth but articulating it in a way that, it, that everybody could understand. And he once wrote this. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it always bends toward justice. In other words, here's what he's saying. Be patient for God. And that's exactly what Habakkuk is saying. And now the payoff verses, verses 17 through 19. And I want you to, as we reread these verses, I want you to remember the focal verse of Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous will live by his faith. Now look at verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive 
fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. These verses are a picture of Chapter 2, verse 4. These verses are a picture of what it means for the righteous to live by faith. These verses remind us that faith is not guided by our circumstances, but by our relationship with God. These verses remind us that joy is not contextually bound, but rather our joy is found in the creator of the universe and the redeemer of his people. This is us saying that even if our startup company fails, our portfolio is wiped out, our health care dries up, our social media presence flames out, and our partner skips out, we will be okay because we have Jesus, the resurrected Christ, In other words, here's the big idea for this message. God is enough. God is enough. And that brings us to two final points that I want us to consider as we go today. Here's the first one. If we want salvation, we are going to have to accept judgment. If we want salvation, we are going to have to accept judgment. If if there's going to be justice, there has to be judgment. If, If there's going to be resurrection, there has to be death. If there's going to be life, there has to be sacrifice. If there's going to be shaping, there has to be chiseling. If there's going to be maturity, there also has to be testing. Uh, one of the challenges is that we live in a time when, when most people not, not only want, but expect a salvation that has no judgment. A judgmentless salvation. That is not Christianity. That is not Jesus Christ. That is something called moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism believes in a God who looks at you right where you are and says, I affirm you where you are and you can stay there and be wonderful. That is not Christianity. Christianity looks at you, God looks at you and he says, I accept where you are, I love you where you are, but I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to take you somewhere better. That's Christianity. But that requires judgment. It requires discernment. So many people want a resurrected life without the death that must precede it. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself and pick up your own cross. Many want flourishing without the necessary sacrifice. Many want to be shaped without any pain. Many want to be mature without ever being tested. I want to win the Olympic marathon without ever training. How stupid is that? It doesn't work. It can't happen. It's kind of a play on Job chapter 2. And Job says, very sarcastically, what, should we accept all the good that God gives us, but not all the tough stuff? And, and let, me, let me put it this way. I'm going to speak now as a parent Okay? Some of you in here are parents, a few of you. Well, four, maybe. I don't know. And those of you who aren't parents, I'll be back with you in just two minutes. This will just take two minutes. But you know what? You should listen anyway because you're eventually going to be parents. Or if not, this applies in other areas of life. So let me just take you through this. I've thought a lot about this. As parents, you and I, we want to keep our kids from pain, hardship, hurt, and suffering, right? We see our kids going through something bad. Their heart is hurt. 
their, suffer, their physical suffering, whatever it is. That we see. And what we want to do is we want to immediately intervene, make it all better, remove them from that bad situation, and, and protect them from that, and let them just be happy, happy, happy all the time. That's what we want. Because we love them desperately. The problem is we don't have the ability to do that. There are times when we can get in there and buffer it, but ultimately we can't do that. Those kids of ours are going to have to suffer. They're going to have hardship. There's going to be pain. There's going to be hurt. And no matter how, try we, how hard we try to keep them from doing that, I know it can be frustrating. Have you ever thought, however, have you ever thought that God has prevented us from having that ability to fix our kids all the time because he has a different idea of what might be good for our children? I know that's tough. I know that is really tough. But, but, but think about this. The one who has the ability to keep us, his kids, from pain, suffering, and hardship, he has that ability to do that for us. Does he do it? Not very often. His standard MO is to say, no, you're going to go through this. I'm going to be present with you and give you the strength to go through it, but my MO is not to just remove you from that situation or make everything all better. This is why James says in James chapter 1, consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter trials of many kinds. Not if, but when you encounter trials of many kinds. Why? Because the testing of your faith will produce perseverance, patience, Endurance. One of my favorite words, steadfastness. That's what it does. He has the ability to do this for us, but he has not given us the ability to do it for our children because he knows that we might misuse that. And there might be a better plan for our kids, one that involves some shaping and some chiseling and some tough stuff in order to make them better. Instead, what he says is, trust me, I've got this. Just what Luke said last week. I'm God, trust me, I've got this. Listen to this. The cross and the resurrection look like such a bad idea. The disciples, they wanted to keep Jesus from doing that. Bad idea, Jesus. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go, don't go and get executed. Don't do it. They said that's a bad idea. But it's what saved us. Because at the cross, we not only have salvation but we have judgment second thing and i'm done i want you to consider salvation gives us confidence in the midst of calamity salvation gives us confidence in the midst of calamity you look at those three verses again 17 18 and 19 it's habakkuk saying no matter how much calamity comes into my life i'm confident because my confidence is, is, is in god not me uh, william cowper in the 18th century wrote wrote some hymns and there's one hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Listen to these selected words from this hymn. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. In other words, don't you stand in judgment of God from your limited perspective. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. And then I love this, this phrase. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. 
behind a frowning providence. In, in other words, here's what Cowper's saying. God has all the backstories. That's what we said in the first week. God has all the backstories. Our perspective's like this. God's perspective is like this. And then he goes on in the song. He says, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Here's what Cowper's saying. He's saying there's going to be a storm before the calm. We have it backwards. And he says these, these two little phrases, frowning providence and bitter taste. It's the idea that Habakkuk has been trying to get across this entire prayer. God's provision and protection often isn't packaged very well, which for you and I as consumers really stinks because we like things that come in wonderful, beautiful packaged. We like the shiny things, but God prefers the frowning things. We like glitz, but God prefers guts. We need to get better at realizing and understanding that often God provides for us and protects us in packages that are unattractive. Uh, in the New Testament, Paul prays three times, God, remove this thorn from my flesh. And he's speaking metaphorically. There was some problem that Paul had. We don't know exactly what it was. It might have been some physical ailment with his eyes or his nose or his back or something. Uh, it might have been his relationship with Barnabas that was a thorn in his, in his flesh. It, it might have been uh, his contentious relationships with some of the churches that he had planted. We're not sure exactly what it is, but he said, God, I don't like this. Remove this thorn from my flesh. God answers him and says, no, 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 no. I'm not removing it because my grace is sufficient and in your weakness, you will find strength because your strength's in me, not in you. This is my frowning providence for you, Paul. Habakkuk, 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 he looks at this thorny situation and he concludes in verse 19, God, the Lord is my strength. Habakkuk retells their good news story, the Exodus. And he says, God's got this, you can trust him. And, and even though that story was 440 years in the making and was filled with frowning providence and bitter taste, Habakkuk draws strength from it because ultimately he knows God saves. That's why we retell our good no story all the time. We retell it every Sunday. You and I should retell it to ourselves every single day. We should tell ourselves the gospel every single day. That Jesus came and died for our sin and then was raised from the graves to give us new life. That's the gospel. That's, that is the good news. Jesus went to the cross, a frowning providence filled with bitterness for our salvation. And you and I can draw strength from that in the midst of calamity. If we want salvation, we have to accept judgment. We have to accept a frowning judgment, a frowning providence, Jesus on the cross. Because that is exactly where our unrighteousness is traded for His righteousness and our new life in Him. Let me pray. Sean's going to come up and lead us into our time of, of reflection and response. God, thank You. Thank You that You are willing to give us the challenges and the difficulties of frowning providences and bitter tastes so that we might see and taste Your